that third verse that says, No ear may hear his coming. But as we're going to see in Revelation, his second coming will be heard all around the world. And we look forward to that and rejoice like a mighty trumpet, like the roar of many waters. It won't be quiet when he comes again. It'll be glorious. Well, turn back then to Revelation chapter 2. And again, we're working through these churches for each service. That way we can get to these a little more quickly and then back to the rest of the study of Revelation on Sunday mornings in Colossians and June. And we saw what Jesus had to say to the church of Ephesus this morning. Now to the second of the seven churches, Church of Smyrna. He has a message for them. Again, Jesus is revealing himself to John as the victorious Lord, the victorious Savior, who has all authority and power over the churches. He has the ability, the expectation that he can tell the churches, the leaders, and the bodies of the churches what to do. He has that prerogative. He can do that. And our only response is submission. Loving, joyous submission, but submission all the same. But he also knows the condition of each local congregation. And he's going to continue to speak of those things. And his message to the second church, Church of Smyrna, is to endure during great testing. This testing is going to prove the reality of their faith and will end in eternal life. This is one of, out of the, there's two out of the seven churches where there really is no warning given. There is a, a, a readiness. There is a, um, a preparation for something that is going to happen that is negative. But the Lord Jesus Christ has only words of encouragement for this church that is going through so much. Um, we'll talk more about the city of Smyrna here in just a minute, but let's go ahead and read through verses 8 through 11. We will see riches in the midst of tribulation, of testing. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Lord, give us understanding tonight and encouragement. This may have been a small church in the midst of a pagan metropolis, and yet you commend them. And prepare them for the difficulties they are to face. Lord, we know that Village Chapel Baptist Church is a small church. 
in the midst of, of great darkness in our society today. And yet you have prepared us and will continue to prepare us for the ministry you've called us to do. Help us here to be faithful, to um, be those who persevere and conquer through the power of our victorious Lord and experience, know that we will experience eternal life for you. And that be our motivation and our joy as we look forward to that. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Riches in the midst of testing. And Jesus wants us to know that we can still be spiritual, rich, spiritually rich in the midst of great poverty and great tribulation. And Jesus knows of victory. Even in the midst of death, he knows what that's all about. Well, let me give you just a little bit of a description here about Smyrna. This, uh, there's a lot we could say about this city. And um, it's actually, the name means bitter. And we'll get back to why that is appropriate for the situation in the church here soon. Um, it also seems the name came from the word myrrh, which was a rich perfume that was used many times for embalming. And that also probably had significance, certainly would picture um, maybe the death even of believers and what they would face in this city. But this was a beautiful, beautiful city that was located on the east end of the Gulf in Asia Minor near the Aegean Sea. And it provided both a lar larger outer port and a smaller inner port with a narrow entrance. Now, I'm going to I have this map here. I'll have it out before you afterwards. And you can see here, we have Ephesus, and now we have Smyrna, and we're making our way kind of in a type of horseshoe here. Smyrna is right here in the Gulf next to the water. And you probably have some maps in your Bibles that could show you that as well. It's because of those two ports, one commentator put it this way, the wealthy and beautiful city also lay at the end of a road, serving the rich valley of the Hermes River on the interior. All the trade of the valley flowed into the city's markets and found an outlet through its harbor. And Smyrna's modern name today is Izmir, and there is still a Christian church in this area today at the time of, of the writing of that particular commentary. So uh, it, was, it was a very wealthy, wealthy city. It was originally a Greek colony, but by New Testament times, they literally had moved the city closer to the Gulf to provide better access to the harbor and easier travel overland from the east, which meant that many Romans, the Romans had access to this city of Smyrna, and because of the appreciation, that connection with Rome, eventually Smyrna, the people there, uh, built a Roman temple in tribute to their relationship with Rome. And then Rome reciprocated eventually, and they chose this city out of all of these major cities in Asia Minor to build its temple for the Caesar, at that time Tiberius. And this was a coveted honor among all the um, Asia Minor cities, you know how it's an honor to have the Olympic Games in our particular country and people buy for that. Well, this time the same sort of thing was to have one of these temples uh, for Caesar worship 
if you had one in your town, you were a big deal. It showed that you had a close connection to Rome, that you were being honored in this way. Um, really, Smyrna, in so many ways, was a beautiful city. It was noted as having streets of gold that looked like they could almost adorn like jewels, adorn a woman's neck, and were described as that because of its beauty. But it was also a noted city of learning, particularly in science and medicine. I don't know how well you know your Greek philosophers, but the Greek philosopher Homer considered this his home, called this place his home. And um, it was a lot more aspects to this as well. Well, this almost sounds like the type of city that we would want to go visit, right? Beautiful place. Almost kind of reminds me of what we would think, well, used to think of, of Town of cities on the West Coast like San Francisco are kind of um, tearing down and messing up their cities over there. But in uh, its heyday, this was the type of thing right there by the coast. And re really, Smyrna was considered the most beautiful of all of the cities um, in Asia Minor and perhaps one of the most beautiful in all the Roman Empire. I mean, this was impressive. And so we, if we lived back in that time, that would might be on our bucket list. I'd like to go to Smyrna and see all the beauty there. Well, folks, here's the dichotomy here. In the midst of all that beauty, the city was one of the deadliest situations for Christians to live in in the entire Roman Empire. And there was much persecution and suffering. In the midst of such great beauty and wealth, has found great persecution and tribulation for God's people. Well, how could that be? First of all, it housed a temple to a Greek goddess named Nemesis, and its actual city towers and battlements, they, they created the city in such a way that it resembled a type of headdress or crown. Now remember that. Crown's going to come back into this a little bit later. But the actual city itself and the temple was built to represent the headdress that this Greek goddess would have worn. Even more important than this was Smyrna was a center of Roman emperor worship. And by the time of Domitian, who was the Roman emperor when John was on the Isle of Patmos, probably exiled John to Patmos, he had actually made Roman worship, emperor worship, compulsory, and there was threat of death if you did not comply especially in a city like this that had a temple dedicated to this very thing. In fact, each citizen had to yearly burn incense in worship to the emperor, and then they were issued a certificate. Um, kind of reminds me of when we were in Maryland having to go get our emissions test annually and having to get that certificate to show to people that, you know, we had that done. Now, there was no, well, sometimes it did feel like persecution <laughs> as uh my, my Buick had some difficulties um, passing that emissions test annually, and I had to go back all, all to get this little piece of paper that said that I complied. Well, in a much more sober, serious sense, folks, if you were a Christian, you couldn't worship the emperor, and therefore you couldn't have this piece of paper, and you were subject to incrimination and eventually death if you were found to not have this certificate. 
And to make matters worse, you were at risk as a Christian for the death penalty by not worshiping the emperor. And then you had a large Jewish community that unfortunately was aligned with the pagan residents against the believers. And again, we see God's people in the Old Testament, the Jews, constantly in some form or fashion in the New Testament, providing persecution for God's people, the church. And um, it, it really is awful in many ways, but this Jewish community would act, or community, the Jewish people within Smyrna would actually many times act as informants and would let the local politicians know when a Christian didn't have that certificate. Or they were instigators. They would instigate things and then get the, world, the, the leaders involved so that the Christians were constantly under persecution. In the midst of beauty and extravagance, was great pain and tribulation for God's people. Jesus recognized all of that, and he saw their suffering. He's writing to them. I don't know if you've ever heard of the church father. His name was Polycarp. Um, he was he, he still was alive about 50 years after John, the apostle, the last apostle passed away. And from what we can tell from church history and the testimony of other church fathers, Polycarp was a disciple of John, the apostle. One of Jesus' disciples was discipling this man who became a well-known church father. And John had eventually, again, according to church history, made him a major leader within the church at Smyrna, perhaps even to the point where he would be considered a type of pastor. And Polycarp was one of the three lead church fathers at that time, Ignatius and Clement as well within the Roman Empire. Polycarp had a fruitful ministry proclaiming the writings of John and of scriptures. But in the end, he faced martyrdom in this very city, in Smyrna, because he would not burn incense to the Roman emperor. He's recorded as saying on the day of his death, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. And so Parlicop goes on to say after that, How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. After he said these words, he was burned at the stake, and when he had not yet died, he was pierced with a spear. All because he wouldn't burn incense to a Roman emperor. Last words, actually, he said, supposedly, was, I bless you, Father for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. And I think that Polycarp was thinking of this very message that Jesus gave to this church at this time, that literally after this message, probably less than 50 years, Polycarp and many others as well were executed. It was literally one of the most dangerous places to profess your Christian faith in the entire Roman Empire. Mass executions took place during this period. This is the church that Jesus is writing to. And he's letting them know, again, he is the first and the last. He's already used this designation. And remember, this is Jesus describing himself as God. 
as he uses that Old Testament description found in Isaiah 41, verse 4, and other places in the Old Testament. I'll read Isaiah 41. It says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. This is the designation of God alone, and Jesus uses this as his own title. It says, I am God himself. And yet, he was the God who came to earth, who died, then came to life, was resurrection, resurrected, excuse me. In these few words, Jesus again reminds us that he had the full experience of suffering until death. But he was still victorious over death. And folks, whatever trials any martyr or believer has suffered since that time, Jesus has still experienced the greatest trial of all. And so one that has experienced the greatest suffering and trial of all now says to those that are going through intense suffering, you can make it through. I know. I know what it's like to suffer for God. And I know that you are suffering. Whatever we face, whatever trials we face, folks, Jesus knows what we're going through. Remember the eyes of flame that see all. Yes, it shows his power and authority, but it also, in the positive, is a reminder that he understands what we're going through. And he's there with us to help us go through those things. Jesus knows what we're going through, and he knows our true riches in the midst of poverty and persecution. He knows when we're going through terrible times. And this church was going through that. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. These words refer to great affliction, troubling things. And we just described a number of those things. Literally not knowing if they would survive the next year as they proclaimed Christ. And they were also, this word poverty really has the idea of being destitute. They had really next to nothing, folks. We think sometimes that, that we don't have a lot in our culture today, but we are rich compared to these people. They had nothing, and there were no government programs available to these believers. They truly were struggling, probably to eat even every day, to have meals, to, to uh, make it through. And we'll see more here in just a minute of why this is, but yet in the midst of that great destitution and poverty, Jesus says, and yet you are rich. And it's a reminder to us, we probably, we probably never experienced half of what these believers had to go through. But folks, overall, if we could qualify Christians in this way, as a group, where I would imagine if they, they made a chart and, and put us on the graph, that Christians as a whole aren't the biggest money makers in the world today. We're not the wealthiest people in the world, even by today's standards. And even when God is providing and um, providing for our needs and has blessed us dramatically, overwhelmingly, there are all, always times where each of us have to go through financial sacrifice to serve the Lord. We all know, I think, what that's like. Sure, we can look back at times where things were rough, where we weren't sure where the next meal was going to come from. 
And, you know, even as those that, that serve in ministry, most of us anyway, don't do it for the financial benefits. But we trust in the Lord to take care of us. We have to go many times through financial sacrifice to serve the Lord effectively, yet we are spiritually wealthy indeed, and we have the riches of heaven. Jesus is going to remind us of that. We have forgiveness of sin. We could we could make our own list, and maybe this week would be a good opportunity to do that as we're in the Christmas season, as we think about maybe some of the struggles that we're going through. As Jesus has proclaimed how spiritually rich we are, Let's even this week make a list of those things. Our cleansing of sin, eternal life, the fact that we're going to have a new body one day without any aches or pains. The fact um, that we have our relationship restored with God and we have fellowship with him. And folks, we could come up with a long list, right, of riches that we have in Christ. One day we will experience and enjoy all of those for all eternity. But now we sacrifice many times. And the Lord knows about that sacrifice. Well, why were these people in a town that was so wealthy and so beautiful, why were these folks so destitute? Well, we find out part of that here in the last part of the verse. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are actually a synagogue of Satan. And here Jesus has some of his most biting words for the Jews. He had words for them during his earthly ministry, didn't he? But he doesn't hold back now as well, because here he describes the Jewish people that are not believers, that have rejected God. Now remember, there were Jews that had trusted Jesus. They're not included in this, obviously. But many in Smyrna were against were aligned with the pagans and making life very difficult for the Christians to the point that they would slander them. And there were all kinds of uh, slanderous things said about the Christians at this time and the different practices that they had, some things that were truly awful, um, accusing the very people of God in all kinds of immorality and all kinds of, of different things. There was constant slander going on against God's people, unmerited slander by those that thought they were the people of God. These Jewish people thought that they were still, they were considered the people of God, that they, um, through following after the rules of the law, that they were pleasing God and that they would have eternal life with him. And Jesus says, in actuality, they are not the true people of God. Because although they're Jewish people, outwardly, they would brag and purport, we are the people of God. We are the ones. Get rid of these imposters. But Jesus actually says no, because they're not the people of God inwardly. They've not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so therefore, truly are not the people of God. But in fact, although unwittingly, for the most part, I'm sure, they were actually tools of Satan himself. And in actuality, a synagogue of Satan has a picture here that they didn't worship. They prided themselves on their worship of God, but in actuality, they worshiped the adversary himself of the synagogue of Satan in their opposition to the Christians. 
Now that is an intense description, but we can look at the life of Paul and see that played out. Paul was persecuting and probably putting to death many Christians until he was confronted with the truth of Christ. And in that moment, he did trust Christ. And he turned away from this very perspective that these Jews in Smyrna have against the Christians. And he turned to Christ. But as a whole, these this people group in this city have not done this. And they are literally tools of Satan against God's people. Well, what happens when you're slandered and your name is exposed? Really, I've thought of slander many times. I've described it as murdering someone's <laughs> reputation. What happens when that happens in the town that you live in? Well, it's hard to find work. It's hard to make a living when evil people are slandering your name and slandering um, your very relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this is one of the many reasons why these Christians were so destitute, because they couldn't keep a job because of the opposition to them. A difficult thing indeed. And yet Jesus knew all about what they were going through. In the midst of all this, in the midst of the difficulties that, our pe- that, that the people of God were going through, the Christians, Jesus is still going to point out in these last two verses that they can be confident, and folks, we can be confident in the midst of tribulation as well, that Jesus promised, promises blessings in the midst of suffering. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I remember a time in our lives when, when Leslie and I were first married, and we I had finished up with seminary, and we were um, helping out a local ministry there with Pastor Reamers at Cornerstone Baptist Church. And we got to visit there just a few weeks ago. What a blessing it is to see some of those people, actually some of your friends as well that, that knew you. And we, we got to worship with them. But that that was a wonderful time in many ways as the Lord taught us much about ministry. But it was a particularly difficult time for us financially. We didn't have hardly anything at all. Where we lived was a very, very small little home that we were renting. We had Arden. Um and there was a joy watching him as a baby growing up. But it was hard as far as even scraping by with uh, enough money to be able to eat. And we, we joked around that we had a lot of rice and beans and tuna fish <laughs> during those days. And uh, even, even at work, the, the place that I was working, which had been a temporary situation until we wanted to take some time to really seek God's will and instead of just accept anything, because as you can imagine, when you get out of seminary and you look at the opportunities, there's multiple opportunities all over the country, all over the world. And it was overwhelming. And so we said, let's take these two years and just pray about this and really seek the direction God would have for us. Well, God hadn't directly led us yet to Maryland. And that was rough as well. So I was working this, this secular job. And the man that I was working for, the employer, uh, was. we had a great relationship at first, but then things got difficult, and he actually uh, started asking me to do some things, and in my conscience, I really wasn't um, 
I really wasn't comfortable in doing. And eventually he even blamed me for not, and it almost, I wouldn't quite call it slander, but it felt, it really hurt. It felt like slander in some ways. He was basically saying, you are not a good worker because you won't consider doing these things. And it was difficult. So destitute, not quite, but we were, we were, we were financially strapped and going through some things uh, where my reputation was being, you know, um, besmirched in some ways. That was a struggle. But you know what? As we look back, it was some of the sweetest times as well because we were learning so much about ministry and serving the people of God. And we were seeing God work in marvelous and powerful ways providing for us. And it was a beautiful thing. And the same that Jesus says here, yes, I know you're going through much and you're suffering much, but let me not let, I'm going to let you know you're about to go through a little more. If you think about this, what do terrorists like to do by definition? And we still have terrorists today, unfortunately, uh, in the Middle East and other places. Um, but many times terrorists by definition rely on surprise and extreme measures to produce fear in their opponents. And, you know, Satan likes to do that as well. And Jesus takes that advantage away from him here as he literally tells these folks, look, this is what's going to happen. You be prepared ahead of time. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Now, this was Satan's desire to have these people, and this would be a literal sense that many people were thrown into prison, and what effect would that have on the rest of the people of the church? Well, certainly intimidation and disillusion as they see more and more of the church being thrown into prison and treated as prison, excuse me, as prisoners, they would bring fear and they would be disheartened, disillusioned. And Jesus says, don't fear, I'm with you. And I'm going to let you know this is going to happen so you can prepare. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison. This is Satan's plan to discourage you. But God is going to use it. He says that you may be tested. Tested by Satan or by God? Well, it has to be God. Because God doesn't tempt us with evil, right? Satan does that. But God does turn the very devices of Satan around to use it to strengthen us. And Jesus says the very thing that Satan wants to use to discourage you and to bring you down, God is going to use. To, you'll be tested. You'll be strengthened. And that tribulation will only be for a limited time, a short time. It says here 10 days. Um, it doesn't give us any indication that this would only last 10 days or what specifically the tribulation would be. I think probably best to have the idea that this 10 days represents a short time. If you're waiting on something or if you have to endure something and you hear, well, it's about 10 days, you know, in the big scope of things, you look at that in 10 days. Yeah, that's doable. I can handle that a month, five months, a year. Ooh, that's a long time. Ten days, I can get through that. And here is Jesus' mercy in the lives of these people by saying, this great tribulation that you will face will not be for a long time. There will be an end to it. And what does this also say? 
that Jesus has orchestrated our lives and the very timing of our lives right to the very day. As Jesus had done here with these individuals, Jesus is in control of everything that we face. And the time that we face it, he's in control of all of it. And so he says, be faithful, even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Continue to be faithful, even as you face death. That's a hard thing to contemplate. None of us want to face death for our walk with Christ, right? We want to serve Jesus faithfully, and then, Lord Jesus, let's have the rapture and take us home, and we're good. Nobody wants to face death. And yet, folks, if we're called to do that, because the times are getting darker, and the opponents are getting more and more fierce, if we, like these believers in Smyrna, have to be tested in this way, Jesus says, I will enable you to endure, to be faithful, depend upon me, even if you face death. I will enable you to go through that, and then what will you have? You will have the crown of life. This is a symbol of the eternal life that we will enjoy with God forever. Ten days of tribulation and eternity peace and joy with God forever. We can do it. Through the power of Christ in our life, we can be faithful no matter what we face. And that is his wonderful message to these. Interesting as well, he says, the crown of life, an enduring crown, eternal crown, unlike the one worn by that Greek goddess that was represented in the city of Smyrna. Remember that? Unlike that one, those, those that city's in ruins now. That crown's gone. But Jesus says, your crown's eternal. Eternal life. And now his message to all the churches, he who has an ear, he who is ready to hear and submit to what the Holy Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I'll just throw that out here at the end for you. Um, anybody know or figure out what the second death is. Yeah, Sandy. Death of judgment. Death of judgment, and very specifically, Revelation tells us later on, it's the final judgment in the lake of fire. These people were having to go through a lot of persecution, but it would be nothing, folks, compared to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Now that's painful. Now that's hurtful. And Jesus says, be faithful to me. I will enable you to conquer the things of the world. I've already conquered Satan, and you won't experience that awful eternal pain of the lake of fire forever and ever. You don't worry. You won't have a part in that at all. As um, so those who have trusted Jesus Christ in our faith in him, we are promised life. And we can endure and be faithful. And we won't have to face the worst kind of awful tribulation, eternal, eternal tribulation in the lake of fire. We won't ever face that. That alone, even for all we have to go through in this world, is enough, folks, to encourage us and to keep us going on. But it also is a sobering warning to proclaim Christ because there are plenty of folks, the persecutors, who will face that second death that lake of fire one day, and they will be hurt for all eternity. So in the midst of our courage and our faithful service, 
let's continue to proclaim Christ as well. He will give us the strength that we need. And folks, remember as well that we truly, no matter what we're facing as believers, we are abundantly rich in spiritual treasure. Let that encourage you this week. Father, thank you for this reminder. We are rich regardless of whether we look at our bank account or our IRA or the struggles, the sufferings that we have in this life as believers. Uh, we don't expect always to be millionaires, to be in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. And yet spiritually, we're far even beyond that. Let that encourage our hearts this week, Father. Remind us that we have all that we need in Jesus, and he will get us through, even if we have to face death. There are many brothers and sisters that we love, Reed included, and many others, my dad and others, that we're looking forward to seeing again. They face death, and they're with you for eternity. So just strengthen us. Help us not to be fearful or intimidated by Satan's devices. Help us to be courageous and steadfast and firm. Go through these things and then eternal life forever. What a joy that will be. Father, thank you for your miraculous gifts and blessings. We are a blessed people. Remind us that every day. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.